Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hello, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational podcast by and for Key Forge friends. And this week, I have one of my earliest Key Forge friends with me, and I slightly teased his presence on the podcast because I let you all know that. Uh, there's still lots of discovery to be had on Hell from Future Self. And with that being said, I bring to you with me this week, the renowned Zach Armstrong. How's it going, buddy? It's going well. It's going very well. Happy to be here. Very happy to be here. Yes, I'm very happy too. Zach actually reached out to us to say he would like to be on the show. And it was a perfect timing because... Um, it coincided then Alex decided to go on his own hiatus and uh, now Zach and I can rock out a couple episodes and I think it's going to be fun. We have, we have some fun things planned. This is the start of the two week break, or I guess two episodes a month instead of a weekly format, which we have been doing. So as a result, uh, Zach and I kind of had a discussion. We decided to do a little bit meatier episode and it'll be around the 45 minute, maybe to an hour mark. And, and we got some some cool content to bring to you. Uh, Zach is going to be a part of the bouncing death quark, we'll call it revisiting mm. situation where we look at some past episodes and he's here this week to discuss about the Archon card. Yeah, that's right. Not only that, though, but Zach actually had a great suggestion for a segment we'll be doing while he's... Uh, moonlighting on hell from future self and zach why don't you tell them a little bit about what we'll be discussing later on in the episode for sure uh, the title of the segment is uh when is this card good and i did the research on the sanctimonious discord to try to find who tossed this out there saying you know don't maybe not uh it might be more helpful to talk about when is a card good rather than like is it good in a vacuum Right. And I, whoever you were, I looked for you and looked for you. I tried every combination of those words and I could not find who tossed the idea out there. But uh, I had put together some notes for uh, Infernus just because Infernus generally a very, very good card. Uh, but there are sometimes when it's not as good and then sometimes when it can be uh, really even far better than just purging whatever happens to have pips on it in your opponent's discard pile. So we're going to be getting into that, and I'm really excited to take kind of a more holistic look at uh, starting with Infernus at a, few, a couple of cards. Fantastic. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Without further ado, let us get into the Bouncing Death Quark episode, which was looking at the Archon card. Reading an Archon card from a competitive standpoint was how they phrased it. So what, what were your first thoughts just hearing this back? Because obviously they recorded these episodes during the Coda era. And so things have changed since then in terms of the way the Archon card is presented and just the way people are using it right now due to the pandemic and not having as much in-person events. So what, what was kind of your th first initial take listening to that back? My first initial take listening to that back uh, was, um, well, one, their initial their initial advice to uh, read it in order of action artifact creature upgrade was unfortunately right out the door with the yep. second set. <laughs> yes. Um, 
which makes card memorization uh, a little more important, at least in that context of competitive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they they did a very high-level touch on what was a lot of good advice. Uh, it was a very high-level touch. Uh, the one thing I would add is uh, also what you're looking for being deck-dependent. Um, yes. But as far as general categories and what to watch out for, uh, creature counting, I think, is big. I've definitely used board wipes when then I realized, wait, they had only seen 30% of their creatures, and now my board wipe's gone. <laughs> I really should have saved that till they played some more. So that was uh, a that was a big one for me too. Was the yeah the no like I think a, a thing to just take from it. My first hot take was know your deck because if you know your deck, then yes. you know what you're looking for on the Archon card. It's when you don't know your deck as well that I think there is some general advice that can be taken from the episode. Like just look for like the hot cards, so to speak, that can cause damage. But if you know what your deck wants to do, then you can kind of pinpoint the infrastructure their deck may possess to disrupt your infrastructure and what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, like you said, yeah, playing your deck uh, and having some educational losses to say, ah, so, uh, you know, this kind of artifact removal really hurts or, oh man, I didn't feel like a burst deck, but, you know, uh, I do have turns where I get up too high and then I get burst punished and that sort of thing. Um, So having, yeah, having those losses where you take notes, certainly helpful. I found for myself that um, speaking on like the artifact, like the best example that comes to mind is like a dav deck you have a dav deck and you have a bunch of mutants that can make dav useful but your opponent also has artifact control and it can become apparent sometimes that they're three quarters of the way through their deck they have not used it yet they're probably holding it they may have an archive there's little cues within the game but when you know it exists before you even play your first card i will sometimes do things like hold off playing the artifact specifically dav because you have an instant satisfaction from it mm-hmm. by uh, getting to play some mutants that same turn where your opponent can't do anything and get some value or i'll maybe wait and get a few more mutants in hand and then have a turn where i know i'm going to get that card draw out of it and then potentially from there that gives me the opportunity to allow my opponent to maybe disrupt it and it wasn't just played and had no effect. I sometimes take that approach with certain things. For sure. Yeah, I think the the economy of where will your artifacts end up is really important. Yes. I think the I think the horizon has expanded immensely for their category of uh what big plays do they have? In those yes. days it, you know, might have been a bit more just Library access, some untamed silliness with key cheats, yes, uh, bait and switch, that sort of thing. But now, like, I just lost in the competitive queue a few days ago to, um, they had an Obsidian Forge out, and I fought down their creatures to where I was like, okay, I'm reasonably certain they can't just win off of uh, Obsidian Forge. And then, of course, they dropped Nefru, which... I vaguely remembered in my head what that did, but they dropped Nefru, you know, which uh, gives you Amber when gives a creature's owner amber when the creature blows up and then just forged the key right there. And that was, you know, a big play like they were talking about mm, mm-hmm. that I just had not clocked yet. Um, a niche so there's, play at that though. Yeah, yeah, a niche one, a niche one for sure. But uh, it was a crazy powerful one. Indeed. So one thing that really stood out to me in that episode was they, they were talking about looking at the Archon card and evaluating the the hierarchy of winning and things like that and the infrastructure mm. part of it and it made me think about 
looking for a main house? Like what is a potential main house that they could have? And it could just yeah. be the way they can establish on a board. And upon that, it I really appreciated the sanctum reference they made about how they have the sanctum board that will come out and it will be very challenging to deal with, which is still an accurate statement to this day, especially even in the new set that's come out, Dark Tidings. The sanctum can come out very strong and be very sticky without a board wipe. And it made me realize that when they said the comment that you get a John Smith out and another Martian creature, that you are inclined to look at, you know, those those chase cards, you know, those very sought after plays that can come from those cards and just you almost go go blind to the actual true threat because you know from experience of getting burned against a card or seeing it in action in your own decks that you can get really punished with a combo play but they made the point that if you actually took the time to look at the cards or the archon you would recognize that there was a significantly smaller portion of Martian creatures to the Sanctum creatures. So therefore, mm-hmm. you could only get burned to a certain extent, whereas the Sanctum targets not being taken out are going to become a huge problem. I thought that was a really, really great point they made. Yeah, yeah. I think creature count is a great thing to note. Uh, a great thing to note in in Archon, especially when you know your own, you know, your own removal tools. So for sure. And that's also within the bigger picture of, uh, and this is just such an art to, to practice with reading deck lists is identifying what is a deck's outs that when you're looking at an Archon Mm -hmm. card that you're about to play against, what are their outs? What are they trying to accomplish that is going to advance their game state in a really significant way? How can I interrupt that with my deck while, you know, playing towards playing towards my outs. How what how can I play in a way that's going to frustrate their deck and, and not let them kind of get their claws in, you know? Yes. I mean, it's possible that you misevaluate as well and think something is the way a deck wants to go when truly it is not. It's it's very possible and you play into something oh, you yeah. did not foresee. Um again, we all know that the more you play your own deck, the more you can discover nuances that are not there upon first blush. So that is something that will always exist within the game. And no matter how good you are, you could get caught off one time by something super obscure, like the Nefru play with Obsidian Forge. Like <laughs> most of us don't really play Nefru, I would say, as a rule, just because it can end up burning you sometimes. But the scenario you described is like a perfect way that you can utilize Nefru and then take it out as like one of the last things or just leave it on the board and you win type of thing that you discovered in that moment for sure and hopefully i will remember it for the rest of my uh key forging days (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) yeah yeah um but their their list was generally quite good i still i still count board wipes and count um like really bad amber burst punishment uh, for instance, I'll be aware, right, if there is a doorstep to heaven, which just has you lose mm-hmm. down to five, um, but really watching out for interdimensional graft or too much to protect that's going to give the amber to the opponent. Um, that's what you really got to watch out for because then you just straight up lose the game if you uh, yes. have too much amber taken that way. That is true. I also found it interesting to think of where we currently are in the game and reading Archon cards because Dark Tidings is, I would say, 
the set that you probably have to pay the most attention to an Archon card because there are so many factors that can burn you if you are not paying attention. So I say this in regards to board wipes because the board wipes are not now just like kill everything. Mm. They're now conditional board wipes where you can to a degree mitigate them potentially. So one is obviously infighting. Having mm-hmm. you see them have infighting, you know that okay, I have to be very conscious of how I'm placing my creatures, what is to the right, what is to the left, what is their power, how will this affect if an infighting comes? Can I survive it? Will I cause it to be an ineffective use of that card? Things like that. And then obviously there is grand melee, which is you need to make sure you have another creature that is from the same house next to your other creature, or you can get hosed by them just not sharing a house, therefore they're gone mm-hmm. yeah exactly and then um the uh there's the two star alliance wipes uh, grand alliance council which where you leave one of each house mm-hmm. uh and then selective preservation one of each power number uh where the choice you might make there is uh you've got uh say a really great two power uh creature out or a creature a two really great creature of a particular house and you choose to not play another matching one because when they play that wipe if they have two to choose from, they can just blow up the really powerful one. Yes. The the knowledge to discard a card that is like for me, the, the one that comes to mind is something like Diplomat Agung. You know, mm. great card, a lot of versatility in it. And then you have something like Youngest Bear, which is not as great. I mean, you need it doesn't have an instant effect. If you sometimes, you know, it doesn't go off because the the creature next to it happens to also be in untamed, for example. Mm-hmm. It may be prudent to discard the youngest bear in favor of allowing your diplomat agung to kick around. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Dark Tidings, of course, uh, I love <laughs> they've literally, in one sense, made reading the individual cards easier. And now Dark Tidings is very complicated and an overall game plan may be tougher to see. Uh, but with the, the addition of the card type icons, uh, yes, which I think was just a very interesting choice. Uh, kind of on a designer level to put those in there. Yeah, why don't we actually talk about the evolution of the Archon card? Yeah. Because we started off with, it came out with the card type, and then it was alphabetized. That's just the way it was. It was whatever the card was, and then it's in alphabetical order, and that's the way that they speak about it in Bouncing Death Quark. And to be honest, I think there is, to a degree, that was the purest form of showcasing cards. You knew mm, what things sure. were. They were clumped together. It, it was a very... I, I'm not sure what was the reasoning behind moving away from that, but I it is my preference to how you read a card. Yeah, yeah. It was easy. Yeah, like you said, it was easy to identify by the, the um, <laughs> card name's position in in the list. So that was that was really nice. It was much easier to to catch how many creatures there were cuz you'd see them all stacked on top of each other. And yeah, when they went, I believe it's um uh when they went into Age of Ascension and onward was based on rarity, I believe. Yes, it was alphabetized and then rarity and it and it went common to rare and special that way. And it's uh the card numbers were designated as such so they were always in a numerical value in ascending order and that generally also related to an alphabetical order and rarity as a result yeah that's right i've got an age of ascension deck list in front of me here yep much much harder to takes a lot more brain power to 
count the creatures, you know, in a particular house if you're looking at, okay, do they have six, seven, eight, nine, ten creatures in a house? And I've got to watch out for that. It takes a yes. bit more counting. And then we came to, and that stuck for, for a while. That was that was the status quo up until mass, uh, in up and including mass mutation. And then when Dark Tidings came, they they totally flipped the script. They turned the card sideways so you could see all three houses in its entirety. And and honestly, I think that was a, a wise decision because I don't know if you've been the victim of this, but I've been the victim of not realizing there's a multiple of a card because one is on the bottom of <laughs> the first right. row and then the second yep. one's on the top and you somehow overlooked that there was two. Yes, but, yeah. uh, I have fallen to that for sure. Yeah. And you're like, what? There's more than one? So yeah, there's there's that. And so it just made it easier to read. And then, of course, they included the icons of what the card is. And I think that was a great decision in terms of getting new players into the game, being very easily able to do that creature count without having to memorize, being aware of how many actions existed, how many artifacts are there, upgrades, all those sort of things that were only known through card knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's handy. They also uh and like you said the just the layout seeing three lists that don't loop around is great and then they've put rares at the top uh yes. too. Uh which is I guess you're just putting the the spicy things uh if you're looking for something in particular. <laughs> the yes. spicy things at the top of the list. Uh but yeah, I'm even I'm looking at a dark tidings list right now. Real easy to see that I've got five uh five creatures in logos um Although I will say with the, there's a whole science to picking icons for things, right? Yes. Um, the, the rest of the icons, I personally, maybe I'm just not as smart as your average Keyforge player. Uh, <laughs> but most of, but all the icons aside from the creature icons, I always have to take a second to think, wait, what does the sword mean? What does the weird yes. side arrow mean? Like they're Isn't not. It, it's the sword and the upgrade one are, are yeah. a little, a little bit. Sometimes you could, you could get it confused easily. That's the one that I find is always interesting decision like the creature one they did a good job the the action one makes sense but yeah those those other two are i think a little less clear in comparison to the others Mm -hmm. yeah agreed agreed okay so with that being said i mean i think it's a great direction regardless of of what your opinion is and if you don't like change this i think is the right direction to move the archon cards for just you can just see everything so clearly it's just very well mapped out and i think it will make the reading of decks a lot more easy and you're going to have more information faster and it'll be more accessible to newer players in the game we're just coming on now that being said how do you feel zach about the general use of the skill that is reading an archon card because most of us have been playing in an online fashion where you can view that sucker at any time. And I, I can fully admit that I have developed bad habits. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, I haven't played a ton online a bit more recently as I've picked up some interesting decks, but, um, I, I enjoy it basically as a mini game to, to train for the part of me that enjoys, being competitive. I love the idea of there's so much information, critical information that you're going to be basing your choices off of that if you successfully absorb and retain it, you're going to be making smarter plays later and not just playing around bigger plays, right? Not just um, holding 
holding a burst punishment card until they burst, but also doing little things. Like if you see a positron bolt and you have creatures of three, two, and one power, uh, you can organize them in a way so they don't all die at once to a positron bolt if they happen to have it. All these sort of uh, just little smart plays to play around their board removal and similar things, right? Like if they have Kaimor Eclipse, uh, just paying attention to what you have on the flanks um, and just knowing all the weird the weird little things to, to adjust for. Um, totally. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Today, I think a lot of people, and I... I don't even, I don't do it much. I do take a pause at the beginning of a match on TCO. Um, Like I don't hit that ready button for maybe a full 30 to 40 seconds as I go look at the Archon card. Um, But uh, I do think it's a lost art because nobody, nobody's uh, needed to, to go play at a competitive event really where it was uh, enforced, except maybe, uh, you know, Keyforge Live and the Keyforge Live over in Italy, those sorts of places. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the Keyforge I've been playing in person is generally in a sealed context where mm. you're not looking at the Archon card. For sure. So it's not really a, a thing. But I, I I do feel it's something that we will need to come back to and we're gonna notice some very interesting occurrences when we get to that phase of looking at it. Cause I I definitely will sometimes be like, wait, did they have this? Like I just because you can, you do type of thing. And and to not do it almost feels like you're at a disadvantage because most likely your opponent's doing it as well. So it is what it is, but I think it's something that as time goes on, we will need to shy away from just to allow ourselves that skill and that muscle being flexed out again and, and worked back into the memory skills that is part of Keyforge. Yeah, and I think I think doing that well is going to equip a player to um, avoid game-losing plays and make game-winning plays, right? Like uh, if you get good at that, that two minute drill, maybe somebody will come totally. up with a, a worksheet or a drill where it pulls up a random card. You look at it for two minutes and then you say, OK, how many board wipes? And then you just make notes on it. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. And then there's something that uh, they mentioned. You were talking about the placement and I really enjoyed the conversation about, you know, being aware of what's there that can because you talked about the Kymore Eclipse and all that stuff and taunt becoming essentially useless to certain cards and and I like the the comments about sometimes putting upgrades on beefier things that are harder to take out because mm-hmm. you can get more use in the long term. What was your thoughts on that? Because I feel like the upgrades we have now and the things that exist, it's changed the complexity of what that statement means. Yeah, I think I think based on all the varied kinds of removal we have nowadays, I think really the uh, the overall idea that they were getting at is put your upgrade on something that'll last longer mm-hmm. right so if i if i have you know something the opponent doesn't really care about like a like maybe an evil twin mookling or something maybe i put it on there because uh i know they've got spirit's way that blows up everything of three or higher right yes or uh, the yes. harder they fall like and i feel like i see spirit's way um it's just such a good clear I see like yes. I, I feel like I see that card much more often than I used to. Uh, just unconditional blows up pr- most things that are threats, except if it's tiny. Yeah, that's very true. But then again, figuring out the puzzle of what will last, you know, what <laughs> doing the math that you think your opponent is doing of okay, I'm going to put this upgrade on a creature. Does that make it a target, or is it enough of a non-target that I can actually get some use out of this upgrade? Right. 
Very uh, true. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add for this part of the show? Uh, the only thing I'll add is they, they they said, and this was in the Coda era, right? They said, uh, you don't need to memorize every card they have for removal. I, If you want to play on a competitive high level, there's so many different kinds of removal cards that you might see, you know, like the aforementioned um, Positron Bolt, maybe a Thorium Plasmate. Um, I do think you need to be pretty familiar with all the situations that would cause your creatures to die a little bit more quickly. Um, when I got to talk to George Cagle, you know, two-time Vault Time winner a while back on Call of Discovery, he said, you know, battle line placement is perhaps not, it's not the, you know, the, the sexiest skill you're going to develop in Keyforge, but if you can just get a few of your little advantages uh, through smart battle line placement, kind of playing around their removal types, uh, that might just get you the edge you need to to take a game. So um, in the competitive context, I'd say that kind of memorization or counting of that removal is going to be a bit more important now, now when that is, there's so much more to it. Totally. I would definitely agree. And one last thing I wanted to add was I really enjoyed the statement they said at the end was they were talking about all the rating systems and stuff out there. And Mm. they just mentioned, play what you enjoy. It doesn't matter what the rating system is. If you know how to play something well and you enjoy playing it, you should do so over what a rating system says. And I I thought that was very poignant to, to have that being said back then and now we have such a strong rating system that is used so frequently i just think it just provides a nice level of clarity to where we are in today's game and that there are some things that may have stats that really shine and you enjoy playing it but maybe the rating number isn't so high remember that remember that if you enjoy it it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with it if it's not got a high score and you know how to to rock it in the best way possible yes you all did an entire episode on uh, owning your play experience, which I think is the most important thing you can do in Keyforge or any game. Just figure out a way that you enjoy the game, shedding yourself of any standards from other people that uh, you don't care to carry on and play the game in a way that you like. Yes. Very much so. Okay, Zach, it's now time for you to take it away and start off this discussion on the infamous Infernus. Ah, uh, yes, the infamous Infernus. So, so asking when is this card good? It was uh, the answer. Of course, we could just end this with when is Infernus good? Pretty much all the time, right? Like <laughs> that. That would be correct. <laughs> yeah, accurate. Um, but in uh, the times I've spent getting to watch high level Keyforge, um, especially over the pandemic, when I got to commentate several times watching people use Infernus in a really intelligent way and then also being stuck with this very hyped up card in my hand in an early game when it was not so useful, right? I said, you know, there's a lot more nuance here that if you kind of break down how one can use an Infernus and the situations in which it's not as useful, then like maybe you can make some slightly better furnace plays so and I, I love asking this for all cards right eventually i'd love to go over cards that maybe aren't quite as like uh, the hotness like in furnace is just a great place to start um, i agree 
Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I know, uh, so I've got a list of kind of um, game state factors, like uh, kind of summaries of board states where Infernus is good, somewhere Infernus is not good. Uh, and I know Blake has thought up several that I did not have in my notes already. So I'm super excited uh, to hear about those from you. Yes. When we get there. Yes, when we get there. So yeah. the first off is, I think, while we're talking about this, I think Infernus has two state of minds and one is you're playing infernus in an offensive stance or in a defensive stance because i think mm. it goes both ways because it's one of the few cards that provides such a versatility upon not only being played but once it's on the board it also can generate amber because there's other cards that exist that do what infernus does to a degree but not to the full scope yeah, yeah, like you mentioned, generating amber, even just being a creature is yes. a key a key part of like when when is Infernus good. Sometimes it's better when it's in the discard pile so you can archive it with something like Stirring Grave, right? Exactly. That's I don't know about you, but sometimes I am like Infernus falls in the same category as Ronnie is I'm less likely to want to take this off the board because then it's in your discard pile, which means then it can be reshuffled or recurred in some way. And I don't necessarily want that. So its presence alone and its effect causes you to think about it differently than you would other creatures. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so it's good so just the, existing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's kind of a it's kind of a win-win in that way. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of a win-win in that way. Uh, so um, the, the the first kind of uh, game state, the kind of the first kind of game state we'll mention here of when is Infernus good is the simplest one that that everybody plays it as and it's good. You know, this is not this is not a bad Infernus play. This is a good Infernus play, even though it's simple, is when your opponent has pips in their discard pile. Right. Um, yes. So you. Yeah. So you've got those amber pips. You can purge them. Uh, and you just undo that amber gain and remove the cards from ever coming back. So it's a net zero in amber for them, and they're not going to get the benefit of that card again. So straightforward, uh, but a pretty good way to go ahead and take some amber, take some cards out of play, and just keep on keep on trucking. Yes, totally. I mean, I, I think that's probably 99% of the time that's how Infernus is being played. Mm-hmm. Um, now the, the second way, right, is, uh, so the, the key text, some key text on Infernus is, uh, some key text on Infernus is that you can purge the cards from either discard pile, which means you can pick yours. Um, and when you have pips in your discard pile and you choose to purge those, it changes the math, uh, in, in a couple of ways, Right, so you can gain amber, and then by purging that card, have the opponent lose that amber instead. This gets especially nasty in mass mutation with Ritual of Tognath. So if you're mm. targeting Ritual of Tognath and another card, you've gained four amber probably off of those two cards, and you're having them lose four. So that's a swing of four, uh, which is which is pretty big. Which is pretty big. Uh, then again, you are getting rid of your own amber pips. But if you know how your deck plays and it doesn't cycle particularly fast, then it's irrelevant at that point and you're actually probably getting more value in the end. So that's deck knowledge that can be a way that's when it's really good. If you, It's good to choose your own discard pile if you're unlikely to recur or to cycle. 
for sure. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then this uh, this next way is one I saw some high level play of, and it was just oh, it was just beautiful. But when you're picking a card, you don't want them to have again. Maybe they're even at check for their mm-hmm. first key, but there's a card in their discard pile that it doesn't have any amber pips. But man, would it be great to have it gone? Like say another Infernus. Um, yes. I often in an Infernus game, I find, or uh, maybe in Forgive and Forget game. I often find myself playing a game of purge chicken, right? It's like, well, right. if my Infernus ends up there first, you could purge it. But if your Infernus ends up in the discard pile first, I could purge it. <laughs> right, right. I I like that. I mean, the the thing that's great about it is it, it's two cards. So you could choose one that targets Ember and one that targets a threat, especially if, I mean, they have Logos in their deck. So you know that the possibility of cycling is greater. It's a fantastic thing to do. And you can even shut down. Infernus is great for shutting down combos in that context. You're choosing things that you may be doing it from a stance where they're not in check, but you're going to stop them from being able to combo out particularly hard. Like, obviously, it's uh, Martian generosity, key abduction, disruption to the max. Like, when that came... I think it actually caused that to be rethought and relooked at in a way that was different from how it was in the past. Cause you could just see combos and be like, you know what? You're not going to get to do this again. I'm going to take this out. And it just so happens. This has an abundance of removal to go with it and then drop it in furnace, get rid of that piece. Bada bing, bada boom. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I've also seen games where um, as you keep playing in furnace maybe you recur it you just keep targeting every amber control card you can see in the discard yes. pile so that you bring their effective amber control down to to nothing <laughs> yeah that is uh or board control or whatever is the For thing sure. that will disrupt your gameplay the most but the same the same principle exists yeah Exactly. And of course, uh, thinking of, uh, like you mentioned, can they recur it? Do I think they're going to flip also can factor into that? Because mm-hmm. if they're, if there's a blank card and they're playing slowly, or there's a card with no amber uh, pips, I should say, and they're it's powerful, but they're playing slowly and they don't have Glimmer, they don't have Nepseed, anything like that, uh, it might be a better choice to go after the amber. And like like Blake said, playing, uh, playing over and over again, well, you will just... Uh, get a sense for what is a good target when against what deck. There's so many factors that go into it. Definitely. And then also, I've seen this happen. It's a little more niche, but I've seen a thing happen where people will target their own discard pile to get rid of a house that is less than desirable. Sure. So what about when it's good because it is providing you the ability to thin your deck so you can actually call two houses more frequently and have very efficient turns. Yeah, that is uh, that is a lot of math as you go. But I think one principle would be what is the card I might want to purge to make my deck slimmer? Is that strictly worse than most other cards I would see instead and also how does it affect my house math but like you said if you're able to get multiple purges off where you are getting rid of most of one house you're going to be pretty dang efficient you know averaging at Mm -hmm. least a three card turn 
uh, if not if not more, when you're mostly down to just two houses. And obviously, you'd need more than just one Infernus to pull this off, but oh, it of is course. it does provide the possibility. Now, when you're using Infernus to purge your opponents, I find that sometimes I'm inclined to either there's two i feel like there's two schools of thought is one is you you don't target the same house you kind of spread it out so therefore you're not creating an imbalance unless of course it's worlds collide and you're going oh your brobner looks terrible why don't i just give you more of that (laughs) but i mean there's i feel like there's moments where you want to spread it out or you want to really take out a house that they want to lean into. I think there's there's two ways you can go about it. But again, it's reading the Archon card. Funny enough how that's just n- so nicely rolling into this point here that you can make decisions like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that, yeah, that would take, uh, that takes just a lot of math and thinking about your opponent's deck about what to, to carve in or out here. And uh, I feel like I usually have a satisfactory conclusion on what to purge by the time I've thought through, do I need to burn their Amber off of their cards or do I need to burn a key card that I think they might see again, but I don't want them to have it. Um, yes. I'm not sure I've, I've gotten through that process and says, you know, let me start to think in my head how many of their cards have we purged from each house. Although I think that is certainly a, uh, certainly a, a strategy, especially when you have, multiple Infernus and maybe a couple other ways to purge. Yes. And one other, it's, this is kind of a niche thing, but it's, it's a, I have a deck that I've utilized this before. I think there was two Infernuses in it and there was something else that purged like a buzzle and it's using universal recycle bin for yourself where you're essentially creating your own little pool of cards that you can call on again. So you use Infernus on yourself to recur things you want from your discard and get them back. And it's, mm. it's, I think Infernus is real good in that moment, but it's obviously not as common, but it is a really fun thing that you can abuse and people won't necessarily see it coming the same way. So you can start purging your own cards early. And then when you get your universal recycling bin out, you have this little pool of cards. You don't even worry about what your opponent's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is niche, but, uh, but very cool. That's the kind of thing where there's going to be one really good deck some skilled player finds and brings to a vault tour at some point, and then just <laughs> yeah, you get you get shocks hosed. everybody with totally yeah. yeah. So um, because Infernus is a, a creature, right? That gives us a couple of other a couple of other factors to play with about when it's good. We, we've talked to, we've mentioned a little bit, uh, any way you can recur that playability because it's, especially because it's a creature is just fantastic. It really uh, it just feels so good slash bad to yes. uh, <laughs> have that happen multiple times. Right. Um, like hysteria is the classic one. You can see totally. that with multiple infernuses. Um, there's a couple out of house, like Chimor eclipse or nature's call. I've seen some people do uh, Compsus Herospex with uh, that turns playability into uh, reapability, play reapabilities. Um, man, then Stirring Grave and Grim Reminder, of course, for Mass Mutation. Uh, yes. Snudge for Mass Mutation. Yeah, there, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. But um, the more you can do that, the more you're going to be causing pain. I'm. I think that I prefer. I like the Grim Reminder and Stirring Grave as opposed to even arise because I like the idea of having it in the bank. Mm. 
and it's not in mm. your hand because sometimes maybe using it right away again is not going to be the most effective way of playing it so having the ability to just save it and then your opponent knows that you have it as well is also kind of a nice thing like i i think there's that psychological aspect i really enjoy that yeah you know i have it and i'm okay with that so you keep going and doing what you want to do yeah and sometimes sometimes the the cumulative value you get off of the threat being accessible uh, mm-hmm. ends up being greater than the one-time use of the card itself, right? <laughs> yeah, and it also goes great with, like you said, transporter platform, hit-and-run, nature's call, all those sort of things where you're out of house. It means it's in your hand, your opponent knows. Mm-hmm. And until you call disc, they're just wondering, like, when is this going to come out? So it, it, I like that when you have cards like this, that they provide just the knowledge that it exists is really causing your opponent to have to play different, like, for example, you can't go into check at six or even seven or even eight. You got to go to nine just to make it work. And if you have some other fun tricks up your sleeve, like a too much to protect or a doorstep to heaven, anything like that that exists with it that can burn the high bursts, it really creates an even greater level of shenanigans that you can get up to. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, and similar to the recursion, like uh, because it's a creature, you can you can get a benefit from it being good for you to blow up and destroy and end up in the discard pile, right? Either because that's where you can archive it from, or you're going to flip and uh, see it again as you go through your deck a second time. Um, but like we we mentioned earlier, before the Infernus section, even uh, putting an upgrade on it to make it a threat, where it's like you know. Maybe I don't want to kill this. I want to kill this off yet because I'm going to turn it into a threat and have you do it for me. And it's going to reap and it's going to, you know, be a threat because it's got this upgrade on it Uh, or using it as a target for implosion or using it as a target for um, one of my personal favorites, right? Essence scale. Um, Mm. Just the fact that it's a creature that wants to be in a discard pile means you can, uh, unless you really want to accelerate it yourself and get it to the discard pile for your own purposes, you can really just have it sit out, reap, uh, or be useful, be useful in other ways. I totally agree. I mean, that's when your stirring graves come into play. So mm-hmm. nice. I, I think I have a deck where I even do something along the lines of it's an essence scale. You play your Infernus, get the play effect, essence scale to use another one that you played out, and then you stir and grave it right back away so it's ready to go next turn. And if you have a strong dis board going where you're most likely going to call dis again, it just really, really allows you to have a fun time. Oh, for sure. I've got a deck like that that's pretty nasty with um, that exact setup. It's got two Infernuses, but it's also got the aforementioned Ritual of Tognath, and it's also got Drekker. So, uh, yeah, I can drain Tognath amounts of Amber and then steal on Reap with Drekker after blowing up uh, blowing up Infernus. It's, uh, it's mean. Yeah, I like it. It's uh, a lot of fun there. Yeah. So, I mean... I feel like this one we got to ask the question is when is the card not good, right? Man, feels like heresy to ask that, but I guess we got to consider it because we are real KeyForge journalists. Yes. I, I, the <laughs> one that comes into my mind right away is actually if you're holding your Infernus and you're not paying attention and they flip and they suddenly have no cards in their discard right. pile. And you also are in a similar position where you have no Ember Pips, you can't take them off check. I've been in that position before where it's sometimes not even 
not paying attention, but you draw it after that happened. And it suddenly, when you have no discard pile to work with, it becomes impossible. Like, obviously, the longer the game goes on, the more impact your choices can have on the game because you have a greater pool of cards to use. Yeah. And that's a really smart way to put it because uh, I had written down thinking about this. Obviously, right, uh, usually like turn one, you're really not going to have any quality targets. But I think no. the one, I think that's obvious. And I think the much more, the one that the the intelligent Keyforge player watches out for is exactly what you mentioned, right? Because when your opponent flips, when you flip, all of a sudden you can be in a place where you were counting in your Infernus for Amber Control, but it got turned off by the board state. And most likely, if you're about, if you're both in that position, that means you're probably near the end game if you flipped your deck once. Yeah, more than likely, for sure. So yeah, that's that's definitely when it can be real bad. Is definitely turn one. I would agree with you. And then when you miss the opportunity to even have targets. Hmm. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh, another instance, and this is a bit more, a bit more niche. I think we we see a couple of these combos in Dark Tidings, right? But when Amber Game is primarily off of uh, like card abilities and not Amber Pips, there's a lot. Uh, then Infernus is just not going to be as impactful. Sure, if you can recur it, like one instance of Infernus won't be as impactful. If you can recur it and keep targeting Pips, of course, uh, if you're likely good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally. But um, there's so much funny uh, Amber Burst in in Sanctum. Nowadays, right? Like uh, free markets, Yuri and the Circumspect, all these sorts of things um, are going to get giant piles of amber that Infernus can ping, you know, one or two off of, but uh, it's not going to affect in a major way. Totally. Yeah, that's a a very good point. And then at that point, you start looking at cards that are going to have a greater impact against you and getting them out of the equation. But I mean, if they don't cycle fast enough, it may not be really that worthwhile in the end so it's some things you gotta you gotta remember and keep in mind now i guess when is also the card not good is um when your opponent has a universal recycling bin (laughs) then then you can't target their their discard pile because you're just going to be creating things for them unless you put really bad cards in there which i guess at that point really doesn't have the same effect in which case you may want to target yourself Uh, i feel like i don't target myself enough hmm for obvious reasons, but I feel like there is a level of play that exists there that should be considered instead of just defaulting to looking at your opponents and making those decisions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think uh, I think that would come, especially with playing a deck, right? Maybe there's stuff you really don't care to see again, uh, or you you work out the math and you say, you know, I really want to be purging my own pips at this particular point in the game. Uh, to be hitting my opponent for that, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I think I, th- I think you'll do yourself a disservice if you only ever purge from your opponent's discard pile. Yes, agreed. Well, that's going to do it for our segments for this episode. But of course, we cannot end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. We call this one help from future self self. zach i understand you have one for us in your inaugural return in this little moonlight that you're providing for us (laughs) yes a little uh help from future self a little help from uh other you know on pause podcast but this is something that 
uh, I've never left the game, but I've recently gotten reinvigorated with just kind of playing on TCO, being invested in a few things here and there. And I picked up a deck from a secondary market that even when I lose, I have had a blast. Even when I've lost to a random in the competitive queue on TCO, I've had an absolute blast. So that would be my help from future self is find a deck that you enjoy even the losses with, right? And in this day and age, you can, you can, uh, I was just looking for cool cards I like. I was looking for Evil Twin, Witch of the Dawns. So find, Ooh. find some cards you just know you like playing. Maybe find a deck, maybe even a strong one, you know, treat yourself and, uh, and pick it up. And if you test it and enjoy losing with it, oh man, I can't, I can't imagine how much practice I'm going to get with this deck because even when I'm losing, I was like, man, that was a great game. That was so fun. And I lost like, uh, mm. so play a deck you enjoy losing to get, to get some maximum enjoyment out of something, something you will always look forward to playing. Uh, just a, a little, a helpful tip, especially as we, uh, await the glorious return of, of, uh, in-person play for Keyforge specifically at a, at some point. Totally. I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I have some decks like that where I don't mind losing and especially if they have like a really haymaker way of, of pulling off something that can really win like i think i have a double might makes right deck that is not got ember control but when when you can make it go off it, it goes off and i think it's got like a 50 or 60 power just in brobnar alone that's so cool so, yeah but i mean it's not really going to stop them from forging keys but it's it's fun to to try and make it happen yeah that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome so zach where can people find you if they uh, want to get in touch with you and have some discussions about what we conversed about today Oh, for sure. I would I would love that. Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter. I am Zach underscore Legweek, Z-A-C-H underscore Legweek. You can also find me on uh, pretty much any of the Keyforge Discord except for smaller regional ones. Um, my uh, Discord handle proper is uh, Zach Armstrong 88, number 1561 number one five six one it's good to know yeah. the number sign i started using that as literally my my handle for some things boulevard blake three eight four zero because it's just the way things are breaking down oh yeah that makes it a lot easier for people to find you for sure yeah exactly yeah discord is my main form of communication these days and you can find me on discord and through the help from future self discord channel that is the best place to get in touch and have discussions about this we hope you enjoy this new longer format and you're not too peeved at the bi-monthly release instead of it being weekly but i think this will be the best for the longevity of everything and like i said we're having meteor episodes as a result so uh tune in and enjoy digest it over maybe two listens you'll get the same enjoyment out of it for sure and until next time, folks, stay fortunate.